The Donald Jeffries Show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries Show. I'm Donald Jeffries. Uh, for our first hour, the guest is going to be Dr. Greg Polgrain. He's the author of a very interesting book, JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground Indonesia. So we'll be looking at uh, JFK from a slightly different angle, but of course this impacts his uh, assassination as well. So uh, Dr. Polgrain, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Don. Good. So how did you, uh, first of all, how did, uh, I guess start off, you've got, it's got an introduction by Oliver Stone, uh, Jim DiEugenio, I'm, I've interviewed myself and I'm very familiar uh-huh. with him at the afterward. Uh, how did how did you get Oliver Stone to write the introduction? That's quite a coup. A lot of us out there, but that's not an easy thing to do. Well, he is interested in JFK. Yes, yes. <laughs> I yes. suppose that's 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 the common theme. Yes, but uh, he's uh, just produced that uh, Destiny Betrayed, which is an interesting mm-hmm. four-hour documentary, and he he introduces the idea that I've done in the book, where a key element of the JFK saga, which hasn't been mentioned before, was Kennedy's proposed visit to Jakarta. So Jakarta being capital of Indonesia and going back to the 60s, it was, uh, well, really one of the centres of the, the Cold War struggle in those days. So he was dealing with that period, I suppose, and it's yeah, natural to, uh, for him to write the introduction. Well, that's well. That's wonderful. It's that's quite a coup. He's a, obviously a very respected name, big name. So, that, uh, congratulations. So, uh, what? It looks like you've been. I, I read in there you had interviewed some people going back decades. Some of these people you interviewed. So, mm. this this was a planned effort, I guess. So you, have you had you always looked at this aspect of Indonesia, and uh, is this something you plan to do for a yeah. long time? Well, I actually started. Don, I started with Indonesia, and Kennedy came second. <laughs> I've been lecturing in Indonesian Southeast Asian studies for 20-something years, and Indonesia was my special area. And uh, I noticed Kennedy's involvement in Indonesia caught my attention, and I started to focus on that a bit more and found some very interesting details relating to the assassination. So that's really how it started. It wasn't Kennedy, it was Indonesia. And uh, I think Indonesia offers few explanations that uh, haven't been put on the table before and uh, they might explain a few missing links eh? <laughs> missing parts to the whole saga because as you know probably know, you know Kennedy always thought foreign policy was his uh, one of his main strengths anyway he, he liked foreign policy and he during the 1950s he was reading and basically uh, finding out new things about decolonization in various parts mm-hmm. of the world. Uh, Africa, we've heard about Algeria, but Indonesia yes. came a bit later when he was, when he was president, actually. Well, would you, you say, I mean, yeah, yeah, but would so, you say that basically uh, this is all related to how JFK uh, approached foreign policy as opposed to the typical cold warrior of his era? I mean, it certainly is a... His inaugural address is full of Cold War rhetoric, but JFK, mm. and going back to, as you mentioned, in the Senate, when he talked about the independent Algeria, and he wanted, uh, mm. he supported the independent movements in Africa and elsewhere, and then he forms the uh, the Alliance for Progress for Latin America. Kennedy appeared to have a different view than 
the foreign policy establishment at the time, you know, I believe, because he, he seemed to, to not want to get involved. And we saw what happened in Vietnam where he was, was planning to get out at the time he was killed. Mm. But uh, do you agree with that? That he, he, he basically he was looking for uh, to support independent movements everywhere where uh, the CIA and they were ten, you know, they, they still wanted to install puppet dictators and they wanted to control these foreign nations. Yes, he had a more what I call a more peaceable approach. Right through, I think it was partly uh, partly what he studied in, the, in his own time in the 50s, a senator, or, uh, before he became president at least, and uh, partly his nature, uh, his understanding of being the end of the colonial era. I mean, the Dulles brothers just just didn't think in that way. They they thought they'd you know re, reshuffle the, the deck chairs, I think, and and then carry on as usual, but. Uh, Dalis had a different approach where he respected various leaders. You can you can pick them around the world, I suppose. But the one in particular that uh, came to his attention was Sukarno. And Sukarno was, uh, well, he'd been a, trained as an engineer, I think, but he was a very, very forceful public speaker, orator. And I think he may have had that in common with, with Kennedy, and they got along quite well when Sukarno visited... Washington in 61 and it has been suggested that they uh, well they got along so well in fact that when Sukarno came in to the White House I was told this by an uh, Indonesian journalist who was accompanying Sukarno Kennedy sort of looked up and said well we, we can't talk here we, we better go into the bedroom because CIA are listening to us they've got listening devices all around here so we, we can't talk here so he and Jackie and, and uh, Sukarno went into the, the bedroom. He said, this is the only room that's not not bugged, you know. And they, that's where they talked foreign policy, <laughs> which is interesting. I've heard no other foreign leader was treated like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, in, in your book, you talk about how Sukarno was uh, just disconsolate when, uh, when JFK died. I mean, and that's the way I think most foreign leaders were. Uh, that uh, he, he realized uh, he had a completely different kind of guy in Kennedy, and I think he knew, didn't he, that things were going to be different under Johnson? Well, yes, he did. Uh, but the reason, what he said when Kennedy, we heard the news about Kennedy's assassination was that they, they, they killed him because they didn't want Kennedy to visit Jakarta. And people here, people in America, people in USA, that is, don't um, probably not familiar with why Kennedy was going to visit Jakarta. He, he really had to visit Jakarta to to get his own Southeast Asian program going again. But his intention in visiting Jakarta, in, he was going to visit in early 1964. But he, of course, you know, November 22nd intervened. But the reason he was going to visit was to stop uh, that conflict that had developed between Indonesia and Malaysia, they call it Malaysian confrontation or confrontasi in Indonesian, to stop confrontation was a must for Kennedy because the US Congress had stopped Kennedy's economic aid to Indonesia because of that confrontation. So he agreed with Sukarno and it was a joint agreement that Kennedy would visit and while he was there, they would stop confrontation for good, not just for the day, but for good. And by that means, get economic aid flowing again to Indonesia. Now, the person who told me that was Dean Rusk in a in a personal personal letter. 
He said that was the deal that Dean Rusk Dean, Dean Rusk said that that was the deal that Kennedy and Sukarno made. And had that gone ahead, had that visit gone ahead, and had Kennedy stopped conf- confrontation, con- confrontation, confrontation, which he would have, because he had the he had the support in Indonesia to do that. You see, Sukarno could not do it by himself. Ambassador Jones told Kennedy that to stop confrontation, to get economic aid flowing again, in other words, to get Kennedy's plan for Southeast Asia flowing again, he had to go there and together with Sukarno stop confrontation. And that, that he didn't realise, Kennedy didn't realise that had he done that, he was really interfering in a big way, huge way, what Alan Dulles had planned five years before Kennedy became president, he was planning for regime change. And Kennedy didn't realise he was Stepping into the fire, you know, he didn't. He didn't know that Dulles had gone to such detail and such amazing, yeah. such lengths to prepare for a regime change. Yeah. Well, there and, and the Dulles, the Dulles and the Kennedys go back a ways. And I, I don't know if you read uh, Robert F. Kennedy's Jr.'s book. Uh, came out a couple of years about family, uh, family values or something about the history of his family. And uh, he, I learned something there. I know a lot about the Kennedys, but I didn't know that Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. was part of a commission that was already uh, trying to uh, exert some oversight on the CIA in the 1950s. And the old man Kennedy was the most outspoken member of the commission, and he wanted to take away uh, a lot of the power of the CIA in the 1950s. And uh, Bobby, you know, pointed out the obvious that, you know, this there was a lot of hostility towards the Kennedy family on the part of Dulles because of the old man. And then you had this young, his young son coming in who he probably thought was naive. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and as soon as he gets there, you have the the Bay of pigs, which was already planned. And then it blows up in Kennedy's face. He's irate. He fires Dulles. So what, how did that all play into it? I mean, Dulles had to be incensed. He was the Dean of the, uh, the intelligence community. Well, more than that, I, I'd call him, He's the icon, isn't he? He, was, he, he started in intelligence before Kennedy was born. That's how far back he went. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. yeah. And that first day when Kennedy was in as president, there were two crucial issues on his desk, care of Alan Dulles. You know, one was the Bay of Pigs, what turned into the Bay of Pigs. One was Cuba. The other was Southeast Asia, Indonesia. And both of them were threatening well, ended up threatening with nuclear conflict with, with Moscow, basically. Moscow was back, backing, in the case of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Moscow was backing Indonesia with, with ships and planes and a nuclear capacity to oust the Dutch from Netherlands, New Guinea. And Kennedy was in the position because NATO ally with, with the Netherlands, he had to defend, support the Dutch or or somehow work out a solution so that he didn't come in conflict with Indonesia because he wanted Indonesia on side in the Cold War and he couldn't afford to lose them. So the Soviets really stirred up things when they when they uh, offered Sukarno this huge arms deal with ships and planes. But what's not generally uh, acknowledged or known is that this was really uh, Dulles in his trickery because... The, the Soviets had offered these huge weapons after Dulles had arranged for a rebellion in Indonesia, civil war, basically, 1958, 59, 
And it looked like the CIA had offered amazing assistance to Indonesia to split up. But actually, Dulles was tricking Indonesia. And at the same time, he was tricking Moscow because when the CIA offered these huge amount of weapons and then apparently the whole CIA project failed and Sukarno proved to be stronger than the rebels and it looked like the CIA efforts to support the rebels had come to nothing. And that was the reason why Moscow decided to step in and offer them weapons and then kick out to kick out the Dutch. So it looked like Dulles had, had failed, but actually Dulles had a man, the Indonesian ambassador in Moscow, Adam Malik, was CIA asset. So, so the, it's an amazing situation where Dulles was pretending to help rebels in a civil war, but actually what he really wanted was for the, for the rebellion to blow up, get a lot of publicity, and then fail because he wanted to give the impression that the CIA efforts to help the Sumatran breakaway was genuine. But the, the, the Moscow basically took the bait and that's why they offered 400 million. That doesn't seem much now, but in those days it's calculated in billions of dollars in the planes and ships. And uh, that's really what convinced Kennedy. Well, it didn't give him any, any option really, but Dulles was using this threat of Soviet uh, conflict as he did in the Bay of as occurred in Cuba, of course, and suddenly it's again, another second example was, was Indonesia. Of course, Kennedy had to really think twice about what, what he was going to do. And he decided to help Sukarno. He decided to oust the Dutch out of their colonial position in West New Guinea, bring in Sukarno to take it over. And that was half of his project. Then he was going to offer a huge economic aid program to bring Indonesia on side in the Cold War. And that's that was his plan, even though he sort of copped a lot of flack about uh, kicking out a Dutch ally from their colonial position. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, took, he took that risk and then proceeded to, with his economic plan. But straight away, that was 1962, straight away in 1963, the beginning of 63, this, this confrontation, this conflict started between Indonesia and Malaysia over the British were decolonizing in Malaysia and Sukarno complained about how they did it and then this conflict began. But what another, see, Dulles had warned Kennedy beforehand, do not offer economic aid after this uh, West New Guinea issue was solved. You know, do not offer, because he knew, he knew beforehand what was going to happen because he helped confrontation start. He smuggled in 2,000 weapons into an underground communist group in Sarawak. So CIA is giving underground communist people weapons and then <laughs> yeah. and then they fled into Indonesia when the British chased them over. The British came over with an aircraft carrier and tanks and whatever. They, they were just young kids basically with, with you know, suddenly with, armed with CIA rifles and they fled into Indonesia. And Jakarta said, oh, what, what are the British doing? They're, they're disturbing our friends in Sarawak. We've got to help them. So... They, that's how confrontation started, you know, and that's why the, when the confrontation was just skirmishes and shooting, uh, you know, just across the border of Sarawak and in Indonesia, that's, it didn't amount to much more than that, but a lot of shouting and some some shooting. So when that got known a little bit better in '63, U.S. Congress said we're not going to we're not going to offer economic aid to Sukarno when he's when he's 
shooting up our British allies, you know, so they stopped the aid. And that's why Kennedy had to make that fateful decision to visit Jakarta to stop confrontation, to get the aid flowing again. But he didn't realise Alan Dulles had helped to start the whole the whole problem, you know. So he's really a new boy on the block in many ways. And Dulles, Dulles had been operating in Indonesia since 1920, you know. <laughs> so he was way, way out of depth, and you could say that. But then again, Kennedy would have been successful, you know. Had Kennedy gone to Jakarta to stop confrontation, he would have been successful because he was so loved by the Indonesians for for doing what the anti-colonial act in West New Guinea, kicking out the Dutch colonial power. That's why the Indonesians loved him, you know, as he was in many countries around the world. But he would have been successful, and that's why Dulles didn't have a choice. He had to stop that trip to Jakarta. Otherwise, the whole plan for regime change, bring, bring, kicking out Sukarno, would have just been brought to nothing. Well, it's, and, you know, I, th I think that Kennedy, one of the things Kennedy isn't, Kennedy doesn't get a lot of credit for a lot of things. And I'm a bit of a Kennedy fanboy, I admit it. <clears throat> People who listen to me know that. But uh, I think that, and Jim DiGenio has written a lot about it. I yes. believe you could, you could make the argument that Kennedy was the last president who was, uh, who was anti-colonial in this mentality in terms of he, yes. he, he took the side of those nationalist movements in Africa, <clears throat> Algeria, Indonesia, wherever, and ever since then, both Democrat and Republican presidents, uh, you know, they've all fallen in line. Let's let's mm. do nation building. Kennedy would not have wanted to do a nation building. Do you do you agree with that? That he was the last real president, I think that 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 you could categorize that way. Yes, and why? Uh, I, yeah, looking for reasons why, I think it's, it's just Kennedy's nature, Kennedy's upbringing, Kennedy's understanding of history, politics. How he taught himself, as well as what he learned from friends around the world, you know, as he visited, he had first-hand knowledge from uh, what's his name, his friend in Vietnam. He had he, he often visited places to find out the details. You know, that's how he. That's why he got so well acquainted with how things were. And he spoke with spoke with people. He spoke with Sukarno for 90 minutes in in the White House and. He knew he, Sukarno was a nationalist, not a communist. Dulles, for, for year after year, always described Sukarno as a communist, you know, or a communist sympathizer. Well, it, well it, isn't that what the CIA invariably did? If there was a nationalist, they called them communists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, even even uh, vice, uh, Nixon, when he was vice president, he, he spoke with Sukarno in Jakarta, and he came back. This man is a nationalist. He's an out-and-out -out nationalist. You know, he's, he admired his ability to speak in public, but he, he definitely said he was not a communist. Even that's even Nixon's point of view. You know, so mm -hmm. Nixon didn't. Nixon was overpowered, I suppose, by in the fifties. That is by by Dulles, uh, branding Sukarno as a communist, and it carried on. And I think Dulles carried weight with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, and they they got the opinion that Sukarno was a communist as well. Supporting the communist anyway. The Communist well, Party in Indonesia was called the PKI, the uh, Partai Communist Indonesia, PKI. And they were the third biggest communist party outside Sino-Soviet bloc. So the 20 million, 25 million supporters, mm -hmm. it was huge. And they ended up being a key part of 1965-66 when regime change occurred. Dulles 
really well Dully's was kicked out in 61 but it was still very powerful in the next few years and the way that the regime change occurred wasn't kicking out Sukarno directly but what they did what they targeted was his supporters the, P, the PKI were his supporters they both benefited from each other's power I suppose because Sakana benefited from the PKI because they, whenever he wanted a big rally in town, he could get 100,000 people in the big big stadium, like at the drop of a hat, you know. And so it looked like he was, you know, you know, he liked big audiences and he spoke very well for hours and hours. He spoke enthralling people. But when the PKI was, uh, well, annihilated, it's like one, or, one, or one million people were killed in that, and that was one of the biggest massacres of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, one of, the, one of the generals, Indonesian generals involved in the killing of these people, they were only rice farmers. They, I don't even think they were... You could call them members of the Communist Party, but actually they were uh, just rice farmers. You know, they, they supported the Communist Party because they were offered a bit of land to grow some rice on for their family because they were landless peasants, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's a tragedy, really, when you when you look at the whole situation in that in that light, because um, they weren't even communists. Even the top British official in in London wrote a report in in 1965, saying he was looking looking at the Communist Party. He was analysing the PKI, and he said these these people are not strictly communist. If you want to, you know, label them that with the European communist label, you know, they're they're different. They're Javanese, they're Javanese nationalists, you know, and they're radical, but they're not really communist, you know. And and yet, I mean, for example, the belief in God issue, which is sort of central in the communist dogma, the head of the Communist Party in Indonesia, Aidit, changed the rules. He said, oh, we're not at that stage. We're going to believe in God, you know. So they they celebrated Ramadan, you know, which is quite a quite a big change from how you'd think of the PKI normally. So in, in many ways, they were a different radical group, yeah. and they had the label PKI, but uh, as, this inter- uh, as this London expert, he contacted me actually about two years ago. He's about 90 years old now, and he contacted me by email. Just, uh, I was quite surprised. He must have read my book in London. <laughs> and but he, yeah, incredible when you get a, a message out of the out of the blue like that from somebody who was you're reading yeah. about in the archives, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Suddenly you get, yeah, and you get this 95 year old Brit saying, yeah, that's that's correct, you know, that's what he said. Oh. <laughs> it's even it's even better when he says you got it correct. But I, you know, Al, Alan Dulles, uh, obviously, it's just a fascinating character, a pillar of the establishment. But uh, for my audience, I'm sure they'd be interested in his association with a name that's familiar to all us JFK assassination researchers, and that's George de Morinschild. What kind of connection did Dulles have with de Morinschild? Well, that's really interesting because I did a bit of research on de Morinschild and found he was he was the son of the person in charge of the Baku oil fields in the 1920s. He was about 10 years old, 12 or 12 years old or something like that. When Dulles in Istanbul was sent over to the Baku oil fields, that's fairly close, you know, to, to Turkey, he, he was sent over to renegotiate uh, the purchase that Rockefeller Oil had just made. They'd bought half of Nobel oil in, in the Baku oil fields. But then the, commun- the uh, Red uh, the, mm, red Revolution, the... Uh, 
Russian Revolution occurred and the, the oil investment that Rockefeller had made was under threat. They were going to lose it, you know, millions, hundreds of millions, probably worth billions in today's money. But Dulles was sent over to renegotiate with the head man in the Baku oil fields about this investment that Rockefeller had made. He was working in the embassy, but they had two roles in those days. It wasn't uh, today, I think, you're not allowed to do that, but in those days you could. So when he went there to negotiate with this man, he was von, he was von Morenschild then, and his young son, George, was the Morenschild. And then they, when the revolution came full on, they had to flee, and father and son escaped to Poland, the mother died. And then he spent a year and a half in the cavalry in Poland, and then went to become a student in Belgium. And he studied uh, oil investment in South America or, or something or other. And in the meantime, as a student, he set up a business selling winter snow gear and things. And he used to go from his university in Belgium, he used to travel down to Paris. And I, I haven't got any photographs, I haven't got any docu documented evidence, but it's highly likely that he attended the same famous restaurant or bistro you call it in Paris where all the all the Russian emigres went because they were you know customers buying ready-made customers and I think it's quite likely that Alan would have met him there. Alan used to go there as well so singing Cossack songs and drinking whatever vodka or whatever and, and I think this young George de Moore and Shirley would have been what in his 20s late 20s or something finishing off his what did he do then? PhD, I think, in Belgium. And then 1938, he went over to America, emigrated to America in the, just at the right time. And for a year, he looked around, had a few jobs. Then he got a job with uh, Humble Oil. And Humble Oil was the, the, the lawyer for Humble Oil was Alan Dulles. You know? And this is about 1938. 839 and with working with Humble Oil Dulles and George de Morenshield were selling oil when the war started in Europe not in not in not involving America but when they started in Europe they were selling oil to the Vichy French and the Vichy French were of course selling oil to the Nazis gave the oil to the Nazis and then Britain complained that, that this oil coming from Humble Oil was uh, fueling planes, Nazi planes, to bomb London. So they intervened. And it was a big court case. And George, George de Morenschild was in the thick of it because his father was living in Nazi Germany then. And if, he'd, if that evidence had gone to court, it would have worked very strongly against Standard Oil. So they had to hide George de Morenschild. <laughs> So it's, it's interesting that, that yeah. humble oil, as I, humble oil, as I mentioned, was uh, part of uh, Standard Oil. It was actually secretly taken over about uh, mm -hmm. ten or fifteen years earlier, but it wasn't public. So this Alan Dulles set up a company in 1935 in West New Guinea, Netherlands, New Guinea, and it was a, a, a company together with the Dutch, but for the first time in decades, you know, the Dutch, because they were worried about invasion from Japan and Germany and whatever, they agreed to Dulles having 60% or Standard Oil, I say, 60% of the company and the Dutch interest 
was only 40%. So it was the very first time American Standard Oil had achieved a majority company. And that was 1935. Then in 1936, a couple of ge- geologists and two other people in this company, Netherlands Guinea Petroleum Company, they call it, they went for a big expedition up in the mountains in West New Guinea. I mean, the mountains, they, were five, they reached 5,000 metres. They're snow-capped. They've got glaciers. And this is three degrees off the equator. So it's an amazing country, you know. So they were up, up there in the snowfields, and they found this amazing extrusion of ore. And I interviewed the geologist, Jean-Jacques Dozy. I interviewed him in his home in the Netherlands. And he said, kilometres away, you could smell the ore. It was so rich with ore. You could smell it a, a long way away. And when they found it, it was just a great mountain of ore sticking out of the ground with huge, very high concentration of gold, and it was copper mainly, but gold in it proved to be 15 grams per tonne. That is twice as rich as the richest gold mine then in the world, which is in South Africa, you know. So going through this amazing alpine scenery, they found this huge gold mine, basically, just sticking out of the ground. And it was 15 grams. He, He confirmed that for me. Because there was some confusion about how wealthy it was, because they tried to keep it, they tried to confuse the, uh, you know, how rich it was later on post-war. Because it's so rich, it's it's causing a political problem. You know? But 15 grams was confirmed, you know. Yeah, and well, I, I was, so was going to, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. Go on. No, I said that there's a, a, someone in the chat room wants to know if uh, about Prescott Bush's role. In getting to Morin Schultz safe package to America from Nazi Germany well, and the Zapata Oil Corporation? Yeah, Humble Oil was linked with Prescott Bush, you're right, yeah. But uh, for me, uh, well, that, that link came in later, I think, when, when he contacted George Morin Schultz, contacted Bush. He was uh, the evidence for uh, Dulles and, and George Morin Schultz was there. Just before America was involved in the war, they were, they were working together in humble oil, you know, and and that should have been it should have been mentioned in the Warren Commission, but it never was, you know. Had that been mentioned, they would have stopped the whole Warren Commission and started again. But uh, yeah. Dulles well, was in such a powerful well, position that was never even mentioned, you know. Well, the, the fact that Demorton Schilt was connected to Dulles anyway, because you already had Demorton Schilt was. Uh, had dated Jackie Kennedy's mother yeah, and was yeah. best friends with Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, that's a trifecta. Yeah, that, well, there. he was set up. He yeah. was, the first one was accidental, but the second one was he was set up. Yeah. Well, I mean, arranged, deliberately arranged, yeah. Right, he was like his handler. So so how did you, when so you you started out to, you're researching Indonesia, you're researching Sukarno, and uh, so when did you decide to, uh, Kennedy. Yeah, but to bring <laughs> Kennedy into this. Yeah, how did Kennedy yeah. get into this? Kennedy got involved because on his first day, as I said, he had two problems on his desk. One was Cuba. One was this sovereignty dispute between the Dutch and the Indonesians over West New Guinea. They had to sort it out. The Indonesians wanted wanted to claim West New Guinea, and the Dutch didn't want that. And Kennedy had to make up his mind what he was going to do, support the Dutch or support Indonesia. So what he decided to do was to contact UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. And he gave, it, he gave it to the UN because that avoided the, you know, the problems of making the, bad, the difficult choice. So Hammarskjöld, had, 
who was already involved in newly independent countries in Africa, had a new policy, he called it OPEX, Operation Executive, which for countries in Africa that were not really brought up to a, a level where they could suddenly claim independence, like more the indigenous, indigenous type of countries that had no real government in place. If the, so if the colonial power left, there'd be nothing. So Dulles, I mean, sorry, Hammarskjöld, uh, got together and put, put together this new idea of uh, UN assistance for countries like that. And he, and he, called, he was going to put in... And West New Guinea fell exactly into that, into that category. And when I interviewed his, Doug Hammarskjöld's secretary, uh, deputy, I should say, he told me that Hammarskjöld was far more interested in solving the problem of the West New Guinea problem than he was in any country in Africa. So he's really, really uh, getting into it because it, it was ideal for that new solution that he put together. So in West New Guinea, the Dutch were going to talk about leaving and bring, bringing the Papuan people to uh, self-determination or independence. And the idea of this OPEX was to put in six or seven top-level UN experts into various new uh, parts of the government, various new industries, and for for five or six years and bring the economy of this newly independent country up into a viable state, you know. So that's what he was planning to do. But in the case of West New Guinea, it had amazing potential in natural resources. It had this gold mine. It had oil discovered in 1941, which is another story. And it would have been a... Oh, it was just so rich, it was a problem, you know. That's the problem. I'm sorry to say that Papuans have still got today. The place is so rich... They can't get their voice for their own self-determination. They're always bumped to the side or you know, whatever. So when Hammarskjöld intruded by putting this project forward, he was assassinated. And he was assassinated in the Congo, sorting out another problem in the Congo to do with uh, Belgium, Congo and uh, breakaway state. And he, he flew over there to uh, negotiate that problem. But he had told his deputy, and the deputy passed it on to me uh, by accident, actually. This deputy was uh, George Ivan Smith, and when I met him, he was retired, and he's living in a beautiful place called Stroud in England. And I spoke to him for an hour or so, and I was preparing to leave, going out the door, when I just found out that this George Ivan Smith came from Brisbane. That's my hometown, so... We suddenly realised we both came from the same place and whatever. And he said, oh, you better come back, you better come back. And when I went back for the second interview, that's when he revealed all this detail about Doug Hammarskjöld being uh, really keen to sort out the West New Guinea problem, you know. And that's what that's what brought him undone. Because he, he's going to fly the plane up to a place called Andola and was landing landing the plane... And I think uh, what happened was the plane was left for four hours unattended and I think someone fiddled with the altimeter. Well, what, altimeter, what did, is, altimeter. There, is, there, is there any record behind the scenes of what... JFK must have been suspicious of Hammerstein's death, wasn't he? Or how did he oh, react to that? Uh, yeah, well, earlier in the, what caused the whole... started the whole problem going was the death of the first president of the Congo, Lumumba. And that set 
instability going in, in the Congo, and that's what led to the other, other problems with the necessity for Dag Hammarskjöld to intervene. When Lumumba was killed, he was only three months in the president, as a president before he was right. killed. And years later, this, that happened in 1961, and then way looking forward to 1975 when the church committee was operating, you know, the, the Senate investigation. Absolutely, yes, yes. French and church, they, yeah. If you read through the pages carefully there, you'll say that they held Alan Dulles absolutely responsible for the death of Lumumba. And I said, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. You know, if, if Dulles was involved in the death of Lumumba, maybe, maybe he was involved in Hammarskjöld. That's, what, that's why I went tracking down the deputy for Doug Hammarskjöld, you know, even though he's retired. That's the reason I started getting interested in that. And when I found out what had happened, it seems quite likely that that's the explanation because as soon as that they found the plane crash the following day, well, after midday, it was greatly delayed, they took out the altimeters, sent them over to uh, USA for inspection, and the person who, uh, who gave the go-ahead, the person who said these altimeters are fine, they were working fine when the crash occurred, was J. Edgar Hoover. And, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, you can't trust J. Edgar Hoover's word on something like that. When he, he and Alan Dulles were, you know, they weren't great friends, but they were at least close associates. Yeah? So I think the UN investigation, which is now ongoing, it started a few years ago uh, because uh, a book was published about the death of Doug Hammarskjöld and uh, it started the investigation. And they've got my book as well to add to their uh, uh, new information. But uh, the, the word of, of Edgar Hoover there, I think, should be closely examined because they're, they're hoping to get records from the CIA, but I, I think they're really uh, they're unlikely to get what they want. But, yes. uh, because it would be self-incriminating to start with, yeah. Sure. Dulles, Dulles had the ability to, he wanted, he gave the impression that there was enough reason for Dark Hammarskjöld to be assassinated within the Congo. And there were mercenaries operating and they, they certainly didn't like Hammarskjöld, yes, yes. But that's one of Dulles' amazing abilities to get what he wants. He presses a button on one side of the world to get what he wants to happen on the other side of the world. He wants, he does not want Hammarskjöld to intervene in the West New Guinea case. So he arranges in the Congo, where there are already uh, lots of people, you know, enough angry enough to, to do away with Hammarskjöld. And he sort of disguises the whole operation as though now people aren't, they don't even try to look outside the Congo for, for why Hammarskjöld was killed. But actually, had Hammarskjöld gone ahead and done what he was planning to do in West New Guinea, he would have caused a huge problem for Dulles Indonesia strategy would have ruined, he would have lost, Standard Oil would have lost control of that amazing gold mine. They would have ruined the plans for regime change. It's basically a free run for the same, for the same problems that emerged uh, two years later when Kennedy was going to make the trip to Jakarta. But what I'm saying is it wasn't Kennedy, Kennedy's assassination was bad enough, but what I'm saying and add to that is the assassination of the UN Secretary General, Doug Hammarskjöld. Almost the same reasons, but not quite. Yeah? With Kennedy, there was a new factor that became more 
urgent, more pressing in 1963, and that was the split that was occurring between Moscow and Beijing. And Kennedy, uh, Alan Daly's plan to eliminate the PKI, the third major Communist Party outside the Sino-Soviet bloc, that is, had had the when they were eliminated, it caused huge arguments, huge dispute, or the dispute between Moscow and Peking to worsen terribly. And that I get that information from an interview from the U.S. Ambassador Marshall Green. He he explained that it's a few years before he died in in the 1990s. Like this is 30 years later. He gave a archival interview, and he said that when the PKI were done away with in 1965-66, it caused a huge problem between Moscow and Beijing and it added immensely to that split. So it's not my idea. It's, it's, it's coming from Marshall Green, the US ambassador. He's the, he's the man who pointed that out. So well, that's, how, that's how the Kennedy assassination was a little bit different to the Hammarskjöld assassination. Well, uh, it, in, uh, I don't think you would really address this in your book, but, you know, a lot of people, in fact, David David Talbot basically came out and named Alan Dulles as the mastermind behind the assassination in his book, The Devil's Chessboard. A lot of people yeah. think that Dulles was, uh, it, it, at the very least, was the conspirators' uh, uh, mm. asset on the Warren Commission because he was the most active yeah, well, member I, of the Warren Commission. What I are your feelings on that? In, well, I, I agree. But I brought out a book a year earlier saying the same thing that Dulles was the man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, it's, so I mean, so what's what's your? I mean, of course, all we can do is speculate. But what? So yeah, what? what right. So what? So what? So what is your view of the conspiracy, Dulles? Who does does he does he organize it? Who do you think he would have enlisted uh, in the conspiracy? Well, Dulles was. Uh, we, we've got him down as sort of the icon of U.S. intelligence, but uh, he. As director of central intelligence, CIA was just one, huh? one of his links. Huh? He had, what, eight, nine, ten other agencies operating. And on top of that, he's got his own networks operating as well. And uh, so we can you know, point the finger. He had definitely have assistance from high-level people. And I think he actually got the Joint Chiefs of Staff on side because of that Moscow-Sino-Soviet split, you know. Had Kennedy visited Jakarta in 1964, he was putting his re-election purpose, the re-election uh, ahead of splitting Moscow and Peking. So I think that argument would have got the, the, uh, the Joint Chiefs on side for sure. But who was he working with? Um, well, to give an idea of some of his extra, extra networks, uh, I could go back to that early period in the 30s, for, for an example, when 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 uh, De Morenshield was operating, De Morenshield was the same age, exactly the same age, as this German prince that emerged in the 1930s, Prince Bernhard, who ended up marrying the Dutch and became the, the Dutch or the woman who became the Queen of the Netherlands. Huh? He married into that royalty, but but Dulles knew Bernhard very very well you know that was one of his networks it's like he was a he was considered uh, was a man of great respect because these these fellows were just young they were in the 30s the and shield and bernard were youngsters basically learning from the master even then dullius was really going back to the 1920s he he and his brother john foster participated in the versailles treaty you know so he's way ahead of of everybody in 
in levels of intelligence and connections and networks. And in the in the post-war years, he he was the man going around looking at uh, armament levels for the for the countries around the world. You know, in the 30s, he was he was with well Rockefeller. He was he was opening up new fields. Rocke, Rockefeller Senior was about 90 years old or something, and he wrote a, a book just before World War Two praising what Allen had done to assist in in the Rockefeller oil empire, you know, opening up oil in the Middle East and and referring to other massive contributions in oil discoveries, you know. He was a master and he used he used what I call oil intelligence. Huh? So it's just another another network that he well, had well, operated. Both, 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 explain, both the Dulles brothers were uh, lawyers for the Rockefellers, right? They were tied in with Standard Oil and the Rockefellers. Well, Sullivan Cromwell was the, the front desk. It was the lawyer at the legal firm that was the front desk for Standard Oil. And John Foster Dulles married into the Rockefeller family, and he he ended up running the show. He, he, it was Sullivan Cromwell was his, his operation. Alan was not so deeply involved, but he was he was definitely involved in Sullivan Cromwell. Together, they were involved with German companies well into well in, well after the war started. They're still dealing with German companies operating it, and that's one of the things that Colonel Fletcher Prouty pointed out that yes, uh, he yes. really he really disagreed with with what Alan and John Foster were doing because they're dealing with the enemy. You know, I mean, wow, that's that's a big accusation, and that's one of the means by which Alan, who was became an OSS man in Switzerland during the war, he had amazing contacts inside. The Nazi inner circle, you know, he knew about the attempted assassination of Hitler before, yeah, before a lot of people around Hitler did. Put it that way, he knew what was coming. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing ability, you know. Yeah. That's why he became so. And then he settled the, the, when the war ended in Italy. He was a man who really negotiated the, the surrender of the Nazi Nazis over there. You know, he, he stepped in ahead and handed it over. But he, he really contributed amazingly to the Cold War because. Soviets disagreed with what Alan Dulles was doing and well, what so, he did. The chat room wants to, someone in the chat room wants to, and I, I hope I pronounce this correctly, they want to know yeah. about Promedia Anantatur. Promedia Anantatur, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sounds no, better right. when you say it. <laughs> Javanese, yeah. Javanese uh, <laughs> writer. He's probably the most famous, he's passed away now, but he was the most famous, he wrote... He wrote the foreword for my book, a uh, previous book called Genesis of Confrontati, uh, which, is, which is the book that shows Sukarno did not start confrontation. You know, and it took Ambassador Jones some time to explain to Kennedy that Sukarno did not start confrontation. Now, now Pramudia and Antatur was, uh, he wrote the foreword and he was uh, put in prison. He was part of a, a leftist artist or writer's group when, Su when Sukarno was kicked out by Suharto, Suharto just ran through the whole community or a whole society and just anything that had any link at all with left politics, he just arrested or killed or arrested. Yeah? And the left-wing left, left -wing, uh, writers group was uh, something that Pramudi Anantatur was part of, you know. So he was put in prison without trial for about, over on a prison island it was called Buru, 
he was put there for about 15, 16 years and almost died, you know. But when he came back, he was living in Jakarta, and that's when I met him for the first time. And he showed, he was still under house arrest, but he was showing me, he, he sort of looks through the window together and he'd say, now see that house across the road there? And the curtain would move slightly. He said, they've got a camera, <laughs> camera looking at his house 24 hours a day. Anyway, I wanted, I wanted uh, Pramudia to meet uh, a, f- a friend of mine who, his name was Azahari. He was a Brunei man accused of starting the Brunei Rebellion in December 1962. But he didn't start it. The British intelligence started, started it. And I interviewed the man in London, you know, years, a few years later, 19, whatever it was. I interviewed him and he fully admitted he started it, you know. Uh, you might have read that in the book where I described the meeting. But uh, yes, yes. so I wanted, I wanted Pramudia to meet Azahari up in Bogor. It's about one hour's drive away. So what we did, we had the publisher drive the car and I put Pramudia in the back seat and then I covered him with a blanket <laughs> and we just drove out right in, right in front of the, of the camera, uh, which was monitoring Pramudia's, uh, you know, staying at home laws. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that amazed me, when we had lunch in Bogor, I mean, the, the publisher shouted lunch to Azahari, nice big lunch, and shouted me a big lunch, and Pramudia did not eat lavishly like that. He had a very small plate of rice and a few vegetables. He was... So, ah, I don't know, so humble in that respect. He had the opportunity for a big meal, but he just refused it and just ate very, very simply. But he, he continued to write, well, right till he died, you know, just after, when did I meet him last? Uh, 98, I think, just after Suharto was thrown out of power. I think that was the last time I met him. He died a few years later. Yeah, but that's Pramudia and Antatur, yeah. Well, that's it's, but you've you've done such extensive research. It goes back so far too. What would you when you put this book together? Finally, it was published by Skyhorse, which is uh, published three of my books, so I, I know they're I know them well. Um, what? How would you describe? Uh, briefly describe like the main purpose of the book, so the readers want to read it. What are they going to get out of uh, out of this particular book? Well, I think Indonesia is not so well known in in the States. Huh? And I think, first of all, I'd like to uh, get Indonesia uh, slightly better known because I've got no hope of trying to explain Kennedy's dilemma of going over there if, if, if we don't know Indonesia. So right. the better we get to know Indonesia, it's like it's the fourth largest country in the world and its, its economy is going ahead. It's going to be one of the largest economies in the world by 2050. It's got it's the world's largest Muslim nation. Mind you, they're not, not all radicals. Some of them are quite lax, really, but uh, they're, they're quite, quite friendly. The Muslims that I know are proud to have a church, a Christian church, in the same street. They're proud that they get on like that. But the, the Muslims that we hear about in the news too often are the radicals over there who, who don't want anything like that to happen. And in fact, they're against the moderate Muslims as much as they are against foreigners. And we don't, we don't realise that so much here. So um, some of the interviews, uh, I can tell you about some of the interviews maybe that might be of interest. And sure, two, sure. Two, two of those, one was with Joseph Luntz. He was Dutch foreign minister for 17 years because he was given the job of keeping West New Guinea in, in Dutch Netherlands, New Guinea, and Dutch, under Dutch control, you know. 
He knew about the gold. Dulles knew about the gold. But Kennedy, neither Kennedy nor Sukarno knew about the gold. So they, they thought it was pretty worthless, big tract of territory. But Dulles and Lunds knew. And I wanted to confirm that Lunds knew. So I, he, at the time of the interview, he was head of NATO in Belgium, NATO. Uh, so it's got, you know, it's quite a big operation just getting in, getting in to see him. But, you know, you get checked with, thoroughly checked with, uh, you know, not carrying anything harmful. So I finally sit in the room with Lunds and he said, we've got 30 minutes. We've got 30 minutes, that's all, you know. We ended up talking for 90 minutes <laughs> because he realised I had so much information that was accusing him, he didn't want to stop, you know. And at one point during the interview, I wanted him to confirm that he knew about the goal, basically, you know. That's, that's the purpose of my interview. And at one point he slammed his fist on the table and he said, it was the richest deposit. You know, he's got so keen. <laughs> and that's exactly what I wanted him to say, you know. And he would say, they knew, he knew. And the other, the other uh, interview that sits, uh, you know, comes to mind is the one in Tokyo I did with a fellow called Nish, Nishijima Shigetara. Nishijima is his surname. He was, he's called the, grand, uh, the godfather of Indonesia. He's a, he was a top Japanese spy in Indonesia. And I, I got to him through a professor, through a student of one of his professors anyway. The Japanese student I knew contacted me when I was in London and said, oh, you'd like to meet this man, you know, Nishijima. I said, yes, I certainly would, you know. So I came across, went over to Japan and interviewed him. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was at the start after uh, Pearl Harbor, the Dutch in Java arrested all the Japanese that were left, about 2,000 were left. Most of them had gone home already because they knew war was coming. But the 2,000 that were left were put on two ships and sent to Australia. And they were supposed to spend the war, the war, war years in detention in Australia. But three or four months after that, well, some of them were top spies like Nishijima. And a few months after that arrived, though it became mysteriously became part of this exchange program where allied diplomats and business people who the Japanese had captured at the start of the war were exchanged for Japanese. And that's how we got back like Groove. Ambassador Grew from Tokyo was sent back. This is because they had this exchange program. And these Japanese in Australia should not really have been included because they were known as spies. The, the Dutch had prepared a big report. They had photographs. You know, and these people should not have been included. But somehow this report got lost, would you believe? And they were sent back. They were sent straight back to Java. There were like 800 of them was sent straight back and they started organizing independence for Indonesia. This is 1942. Starting, they started special schools of instruction and how to run a country and how to form a government and how to do this. And, and they were teaching them for three years before the end of the war. And this, this, and I always, I was trying to find out from Nishijima who organized this inclusion of the Japanese because they played such an important role you know in in Indonesian independence and as I was approaching his window his front door in, in Tokyo in his house in Tokyo he put his head at the window and he said have you contacted Dean Rusk yet 
<laughs> and I, I always thought Dean Rusk was exactly the person who would know because he was one of the top uh, intelligence people in the war, one of the top five, you know, in the War Department. And I'd actually sent a letter to Dean Rusk asking him, you know, was he part of this? And he said, no, it wasn't me, it was the State Department. So he knew about it. But he said, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Because it's a war crime, basically, what happened. It was a, <laughs> a war crime that's never been declared a war crime, you know. Right. The Dutch were really angry when they found out. Wow, so angry. And, and they made a deal with the Americans. Okay, we'll forgive you that if you promise at the end of the war, when the Japanese are being defeated and American troops come in and kick them out, that you hand, America hands back the Indies, Java in particular, hand them back to Dutch colonial authorities. And that was the deal. But of course, that didn't happen. Just, just before it was going to happen, the Americans, well, General Douglas MacArthur, or the people under him, handed over control to Mountbatten. Mountbatten yes. was the one who, Mountbatten was the one who had to face the Indonesian War of Independence for a year before the Dutch came back, you know. A couple, a, a couple of people in the chat, a couple of people in the chat room want to know if JFK had lived, what would be, what, how would Indonesia have been different? Yes, because he, his trip to Jakarta would have succeeded, and had that gone ahead, his huge economic program would have increased the standard of living. That means that the draw card for joining the PKI would have just dropped. The PKI. PKI would have lost a lot of their support, and in the elections, they would have been they would have been elected as part of the government. But they're not they're just not as radical a group as Alan Dulles has always portrayed them, you know. And they they weren't even an illegal party. They were that, that's why I puzzled them when they all got killed. They said, well, "What have we done wrong?" They didn't even know. We just want a bit of land to grow rice on. That's it. That's as far as the politics went. So. How would it have turned out? I think JFK would have secured Indonesia on the on the Western side in the Cold War, and it would have been a great success. Had Kennedy managed to bring Indonesia on side, and had he stopped confrontation with that visit to Jakarta, he would have been re-elected. He, he would not have been re-elected if he, if he didn't stop confrontation. It would, would have been a mess, you know. That's why he really wanted to go to Jakarta to stop confrontation, to get the program working again before the elections came up at the end of the year. So he would have been re-elected. He then would have looked at Vietnam. I mean, he'd, he'd started, he looked at that closely already, and there's 1,000 was, 1, advisors were coming out. He would have withdrawn that level. The Vietnam War would not have would not have happened. Not not the way it happened anyway. With thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops over there and such absolutely. horror and agony. Yeah. Uh, well, you, how, you would have avoided that. Absolutely. Yeah. How before before you wrote this book, because you know, again, my uh, my wheelhouse is the JFK assassination. I started out uh, as a teenager, uh, you know, working uh, with Mark Lane's group, Citizens Committee of Inquiry. So I, I, this right. thing has been in my mind since the mid '70s as a teenager, and I've, I've devoted a lot of time to it. Uh, were you interested in his assassination before? Did that come out of maybe researching this, or did you have an interest in it before? And how has you, you've got Oliver Stone and Jim DiEugenio uh, from the research community? In, in, in the book, as writing before yeah. and afterwards, how, yeah, yeah. how has, has, has the research community reached out to you? Have you heard from any JFK assassination researchers as to what they thought about the book? Oh, um, 
one person who wrote a book called, uh, I think his name was Douglas, was it? He uh, he wrote a book, JFK and the Unspeakable. Yes, James Douglas, he, yes. Yes, he contacted me and said, talking about this stopping this trip to Jakarta and what would have happened or what would not have happened, you know, if it, if it had been successful. He said, basically, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> and I took that as a really good, really amazing compliment because... Uh, absolutely, yeah. Gen- generally, generally the, the understanding of Indonesia here is is stopping people from a bigger understanding of, of what happened to JFK, you know. They don't understand how big Indonesia is. It's one-seventh of the equator. That's that's how far it spreads around the equator. One seventh. It's a huge country. Five what is it in miles? I think it's five thousand four hundred kilometers. What's it? Three and a half thousand miles? It's mm-hmm. far yeah. wider than USA at the widest point, you know. That's how wide Indonesia is. It's not very uh it hasn't got the depth, I suppose. You're never far from the ocean because it's a big long archipelago, the largest in the world. But if you understand Indonesia or get to understand Indonesia more deeply, so, you know Populations approaching 300 million, but it's got such potential. You know, there's a huge gas deposit being opened up uh, just northwest of Australia, and that's. I spoke to some geologists, and they said, "Well, that's just one of them." You know, I'm not sure how gas is going to go in the in the climate, uh, you know, climate problem now. Trying to reduce uh, that. Solar power would be better, but even solar power would go well in Indonesia. It's right on the equator, and and Earth and they've got it's the it's the uh, ring of fire with volcanoes and earthquakes. They've got such if they could harness the potential, but the problem with Indonesia is that it's uh, prone to corruption. The army took control in 1965, and when Suharto was kicked out in 1998, the army was still very much a force. To reckon with, and it, it's even though they say Indonesia's now got democratic government, the armies and a lot of the people in the government are just have taken off their uniforms and put on a suit, and that's the problem, because the army is still very much a, a power in Indonesia, and the other problem with Indonesia is the level of corruption. It is amazing, you know. I, I've told them time and time again, if well, I was, I was invited to speak in the Indonesian Parliament there after after the uh, one of the books I wrote was translated into Indonesian and it it was uh, well it was on the news for two weeks and I was invited into the parliament to speak but it, it didn't happen because even though I was ready and we'd written the speech and the car was ready and I was all dressed ready to go about 90 minutes before I was going to be taken to the parliament building to speak this almighty storm burst over Jakarta and the the raindrops were like marbles hitting the window, you know. And in about half an hour, the streets just filled with water. <laughs> and it was a complete mess. And the talk was cancelled, I'm afraid to say. Mm-hmm. But what I was going to say in that talk was that, look, you've got a, the world's biggest gold mine in West Papua. We call it West Papua. That's, uh, it's, mm-hmm. Netherlands New Guinea was chopped, has been chopped into two provinces. One is called Papua, one is West Papua, you know. But generally, I say West Papua to cover the whole western half of New Guinea. So you've got this gold mine in, in, in West Papua, and it's so rich, you know. It is so rich that really school children in, in Jakarta should be given free education 
and they should be given free medical assistance, free medical help. It should all be free. You've got such a wealth of gold over there. But this wealth of gold is not always uh, openly admitted by the Freeport mine. It's, it seems to be there's a, there is a discrepancy. As I point out in the book, there is a discrepancy between what they say is mined, what is officially mined in their annual reports, and what is actually mined. You know? And the evidence came from the Freeport security itself because I, I spoke with them in, in Timica and uh, he admitted to me that gold is taken out you know, and gold is taken out of the country illegally you know, without the knowledge of Jakarta government. So Jakarta's not getting the revenue that it should be from this mine. So, but the other people who are not getting proper account is Freeport shareholders. I, I keep asking, what, what's happening? Why, why don't Freeport shareholders um, cause more of a problem? If they, they realise what's happening, where, where's this gold going? You know, what's happening to this gold? Because I've confirmed again and again with various people that it's, what I've been saying is correct. You know? I mean, first of all, I confirmed it with the man who discovered the mine, Jean-Jacques Dozy. He, he was the geologist who found it. You know? And I got him to read out his own report he said, it's not 15 grains per tonne, GR, it said, it's 15 grams per tonne. And that's how they disguised the, the amazing concentration of gold for years and years. Freeport, Freeport have got this fairy tale explanation for how they found out about this gold mine in the 1958-59 period. You know? They said, oh... One of their one of their top geologists happened to be looking in a museum, uh, into a library, and they, they found the record and so on. So, absolute nonsense, you know. When I interviewed Jean-Jacques Dozy, the person just up the road, who was in the Dutch company that brought in Freeport, from Freeport was in Cuba before. You know, they had the world's most modern nickel refinery there when Fidel kicked them. Well, came in and, and claimed it. You know? So Freeport came direct from Cuba, but this man up the road from Jean-Jacques Dozy, grew, their children grew up together. They knew each other very well. That's, that puts the lie to what Freeport have been saying and all their you know, explanations for how they found the Freeport deposit years ago. In, and uh, basically the Dutchman, who was in contact with the Dutch government, who knew about the gold, told Freeport about the gold and brought Freeport in. And I asked uh, Joseph Luntz, who was you know, NATO Secretary General, I asked him about this approach to the Americans. And he said, well, he asked the Americans, that's Freeport, would they like to do a joint venture to, to mine the gold? You know? And the reply that he got was, no, we're going to get it as soon as we've kicked you out. You know? That that was a straight in, you know, like a slap on the face, you know, clear off, and we're going to get the gold, and that's exactly what happened. You know? Absolutely. Well, and they had ten years, ten years tax free. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, we we've gone over the hour. I've I kept you longer than uh, probably you, <laughs> that you might have won. No, that's great. No, I, I I appreciate you staying on longer. The the audience has enjoyed it. Uh, so go ahead. I want you to. Tell everybody where they can get the book to uh, promote anything else you want to promote. Uh, the, the, the floor yeah. is yours. Well, JFK versus Alan Dulles, back 
Battleground Indonesia is available only online through Amazon. There are a few other points of distribution, I think uh, Book uh, Depository in London uh, will make it available, but basically Amazon online, because you can't get it over the counter. COVID, COVID intervened, sorry. COVID was, uh, it must have been the worst time to publish a book in 500 yes. years. Yes, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I'm but, still waiting for a book signing for my last two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story. But uh, yeah, and also, if anybody has any questions, and I, I really appreciate uh, feedback because I had two two American ladies contacted me once, and they said one of the points I had mentioned in the book where uh, uh, a man was killed in a in a in a vehicle by a big truck coming the other way, you know, and I thought it was assassination, but I've got, I was going to, I didn't check up on it. I contacted the police, but then I didn't go any further. I was doing other things. And they said, they're going to check up for me. <laughs> things like that. Mm -hmm. The records, you know, which I really appreciate because it's, it's definitely, he was definitely killed. I contacted the, the widow of the man, you know, years later, and she said, oh, she's still terrified, you know, when the truck wheel of the truck just crushed her husband next to her in the car sure. and she got so traumatized you know she thought i was you know i was going to do the same thing but no no i'm not chasing i'm just asking questions you know but she knew he'd been killed so things like that feedback from people who read the book um it's very much appreciated yes uh, well, how, can, how can how can people contact you well um you could do it if you forget the email um, you could just contact the publisher, Skyhorse, and that'd give you my email. But otherwise, it's just my surname with a Y in front. It's my first name's Greg, but Gregory. So I use the Y, Polgrain, at gmail.com. So that's, if you want to ask any questions, fire off, fire an email. And uh, so it's Y, Polgrain, at gmail.com and you can uh, I'll attempt to answer as many as I can. Well, I do answer do answer emails, yes. Well, I, I appreciate you staying on over the hour for us and it's a fascinating talk. Uh, a very important book out there. Dr. Greg Polgrain, thanks so much for joining us and we'll be right back after these words. Thank you, Don. In a time of fake news, fake politicians, and fake fiat currency, it's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Hi, this is Ron Paul. You're listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show. 
WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Hi there, this is John Barber, and you're listening to the most informed man in America, my friend, fellow author, and raconteur, the great Donald Jeffries Show. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right, well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, she knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now, has a real effort on the JFK assassination book into her claims? Go to Amazon.com, enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, (laughs) a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all great information support chuckochelli at chili.com there's no money in it so yeah that is that's the, the problem that's the biggest problem i think and uh, you know some people would say that look you're in an age when you can be independently supported but uh quite frankly i, I i'm on that business model too and uh, look i'm not going to complain but uh but i'm going to complain Okay, because people want to support you. They love you to death, but uh, honestly... So if you're listening in, this is a very unsubtle request to support the damn show. And I want you to do this, because, you know, uh, the Achille Report is one of the few places where Greg Palace can get his his, uh, stuff out. I mean, you'll still see my bylaws in some of these outlets, but nevertheless, um, I used to be a regular on CNN and on MSDNC, uh, but uh, no more. Revelation through conversation. Ochilly.com. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. Hi, this is Cindy Sheehan. You're listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show. Ochilly.com. Revelation through conversation. You are listening to The Donald Jeffrey 
Jeffries Show. And welcome back to the Donald Jeffries Show. I hope you guys enjoyed Dr. Greg Polgrain. And now it's time for the free-form ranting and raving second hour of the show. And I will have a, 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 a special guest star here. We'll, we'll ask him to... Uh, it's, if you watch What's My Line, you know, they do the uh, sign-in place. So we're going to do a bit of a, a celebrity uh, thing here, see if you people can guess who it is. Um, and we're also opening up the phone lines, as if that was if this the special guest wasn't enough. Uh, so please call and love hearing from you, 319-527-5016. Again, that number is 319-527-5016. So mystery guest, give us a hint as to your identity. I'm one of the three searchers. <laughs> that certainly narrows it down okay well you couldn't be chris grave because he's in the chat room uh peter i'm not sure where peter is peter's not in the chat room so that would mean you're bob wilson how about that <laughs> and chris guessed it oh man he knew it says he's a bob wilson you yeah. said the secret word groucho yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> Well, Bob, we could, we, you know, we we always have plenty to talk about. We uh, are uh, well, Citizen GX identified you too, man. I thought we did a good job of uh, confusing you. We didn't make that uh, very challenging. Very confused. (laughs) We didn't make that very challenging. Unusual. Bob and I are always uh, talking about the state of the world, the collapse of uh, civilization as we know it, and it just keeps getting uh, crazier and crazier every day. Uh, you know, I just I, I was just amazed that uh, just just getting to show you how to control this this absurd government of ours of ours is uh, it was it was ridiculous enough that uh, Joe Biden the Biden administration committed wanted to commit thirty three billion dollars to Ukraine to prop up this uh, former comedian who is uh, who's banned all the other political parties there but somehow he's he's the bastion of democracy now. Different view of democracy, I guess. But $33 billion when we have our own roads collapsing, uh, potholes everywhere. Uh, we have uh, people literally crapping in the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles, tent cities everywhere, uh, prices out of control. I mean, this is or, – or, or welling in on steroids, and we're sending 30 – imagine what $33 billion could do here. $33 billion over there. But that that's not – that wasn't $33 billion because Nancy Pelosi, another one of our <laughs> geriatric leadership that we have uh, – I mean, Trump is actually much younger than these people. You know, we need to get some young blood back in there. Bring Trump back. Uh, Pelosi says, no, no, you know, we're not going to give you uh, uh, $33 billion. We're giving you $40 billion. So $40 billion is going over there. So it's just – Mind-boggling, Bob. What 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 are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, in discussions with you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, pretty much daily we talk, but um, it's disgusting. It's just, um, you know, people have said that these people are puppets and actors, and um, it becomes more apparent every day, even from what vantage point we have as as you know regular citizens. Even though we try to look at this stuff, it's just becoming in your face. And uh, it's it's evident that this isn't just uh, someone mismanaging funds because they don't know what they're doing. There seems to be a concerted effort to sink us and put us in a position where, you know, all the events that have happened recently. And, you know, one of the last in the chain of dominoes has been this digital currency. So obviously they want everybody to move to it. And, uh, 
you know, they're they're spending money like it's water because basically it, I guess it's going to be just a number in a computer at some point. And when we crash, we're going to be at their behest, you know, if you'd like food. Now, there's food shortages uh, that seem to be coming, and that seems to be, unfortunately, very solid. So what is it going to be like if you want to eat, have a good social credit score? And then on top of that, uh, you know, you're going to have to take digital currency if people are desperate and people have grown up on computers. I guess they don't have the fear of control that someone in our generation would have. Uh, you know, I might get a, a viewpoint uh you know, from having a few more years and looking back even beyond us to World War II, you know, numbering people and such, uh, the whole thing is very frightening. I, if anybody wants a, has a global currency, uh, an electric global currency, and the bankers must be salivating over this, and, you know, out of the blue, Biden just announces we're going to go digital. I mean, after all the other things that have happened and we're supposed to believe this is a coincidence, mm. this is conspiracy theory, I mean, they don't even try to hide it anymore, am I wrong? In a rare drop-in on the Donald Jeffrey show, uh, I want to <laughs> remind you, uh, or, or at least alert the two of you, not remind you, but alert the two of you, that you know, if you had actually been listening to my show five, six years ago, yeah, you would have heard about all of this coming, because uh, I was discussing you're, the you're social... A wise, you're a wise man that, uh, you know... That's Chuck forecast this. Yeah. It wasn't me, actually. It was a guy named Jeffrey Matt that wanted to discuss it and uh, alerted me to what was going on in China and alerted me to, you know, what we knew about and, uh, you know, what what the media was already starting to show us. I'm not sure how many years ago that Black Mirror episode was called Nosedive uh, that featured, uh, was it uh, Bryce Dallas Howard? Uh, Bryce- Dallas Bryce Howard, da- Bryce Dallas, whatever the redheaded Ron, Ron Howard's daughter, Ron yeah. Howard's daughter, the redheaded child of uh, Ron Howard, uh, in, in an episode where this whole thing was just all about her social credit score getting destroyed, and uh, what that was like, and it was pretty real then. It was pretty real ahead of that, and uh, yeah, no big surprise. It's got nothing to do with the coins because printed money, you know, in reality, what has not existed in the quantity that they keep telling us it does for what about 30 years so you know for people just getting alerted to this now you're behind the curve anyway sorry you know who's really behind the curve it's chuck is a wise man i've learned much by talking uh, to him but you know people had a real head start on us about two thousand years ago they said there would be a mark without which you can't buy or sell i think that's uh the bible kind of had us by two thousand years that should start a riot yeah, it's it fun. could. It could. But again, I discussed that as well, along with this, <laughs> and always have, because uh, prophecy is prophecy for a reason. Uh, even if you don't necessarily take it literally, guess what? These things do come to fruition. And sometimes people take them as, uh, what, a blueprint, don't they? Right. So there's yes, all sorts of ways to go at it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, we, and this is this is all part of the the great collapse theory that and you know even in my world the conspiracy world everybody and I can see it happening as well they are they are purposely collapsing it they're trying to destroy things but I, I have to confess and again I'm not you know I don't get to go to the conspirators meetings you know they don't let me in on anything but I I don't understand it from a standpoint these guys have it made the people that are running this world have absolute power. They have the the public about as dumbed down as possible. They can literally do anything. They, they shut down the whole world in a week with not a single troop being needed, not a single cop being needed, not a single law being needed. They just, you know, they were, you know threw the fear porn out there on the on the mainstream media and boom, 
people stayed six feet apart. They wore their masks. They got uh, eventually they got the warp speed uh, vaccination, uh, you know, five times or whatever. Uh, so they're listening. They're obeying the rules. They're, they listen to orders. They follow orders about as well as they can. So I don't really understand why would you want to destroy something that has given you absolute power? You've, you've captured virtually all the wealth. You have so much power. I, explain. Can either of you explain to me? What what and again I know you're having to speak for the conspirators and we don't know why the hell they do anything they do I guess but why would they want to destroy this this makes no sense it's like you're living in the this opulent mansion and you just decide to trash it and you don't have anywhere else to go I I don't understand what why are they doing this on purpose well whoever wants to go first I know Chuck has input he's uh, we talk about this stuff too but if I can go first it was I, I think. They're very sick people, and when they say that they live by a different standard of morals, like I think both of you guys are very moral people, like Chuck, and when I hear his basic values are decent, and Don as well, you want the betterment of people. I think these people have lost their souls, and they basically just want to rule, as you said, but not only, you know, they don't look at the regular people as, hey, we just have to lead them. They just look at them as chattel. They, you know, consider them to be numbers. They don't consider them to be human they're there at their disposal and you know like when we listen to fletcher prouty for many years we've all read him and he was one of the guys who said it chuck could probably give us 10 other guys too but like you know he said it was the first time i thought of it uh he had answered some letters i wrote and he said you know bob they want to depopulate the earth because it's easy to control people you know Mm -hmm. and they don't look at soldiers as as people if you're not an officer they look at them as chattel so you know ipso facto they look at the citizenry as chattel so if they can, you know, and they're all after resources, like look what they did in Indonesia in the fine show you just had that was explained. And all these things adding together, get rid of population, take the natural resources. I just don't know where they're going to live. Are they going to live on the moon or are they going to live inside the earth? Uh, or they have places that are protected. That would be the only thing, like if a nuke gets loose, God forbid, or something, um, where are they going to go? So I've, I've been a little long-winded, but it, it really frightened, genuinely frightens me. Well, yeah, no, me too. And uh, Chuck, Chuck's decided to take a backseat now. He wants us to talk. That's cool. But uh, I, you know, well, I, I understand the depopulation agenda. That's as clear as day. And that's, you know, that's part of eugenicist belief. And uh, most of our leaders then uh, are, are eugenicists. So they, they clearly have wanted millions, if not billions of, of people to die for a long time. They, they you know, they want to cull the herd. But I, I don't understand the idea of destroying everything in the process. I mean, they could they, they could unleash a real virus to kill people. Uh, they can do lots of other things, you know, just you know, mass murder spree or whatever. But uh, poison the food. There's there's lots of things they could do. But I don't I don't understand why they have to collapse everything because there's they're they're going to need some people left. You know, to you have to have uh, some worker bees, you know, to run the the uh, the ant farm. Can you have to have people. That? What's that? Yeah, well, well, that's true. Yeah, that's I've true. robotics advanced so far that most jobs are obsolete. Yeah, maybe so. So, I, but I, I again, I guess we're we're trying trying to get in the head of these people, and we don't know what the hell they are. Are they reptilians? Are they Satanists? I don't know what the exactly. hell they are. Yeah, we're trying to trying to figure out that they don't, as you said, they don't think like we do. They're they're completely different. But I don't understand just why why wouldn't you want some people around? I mean, I don't know to to. Well, I'm sure they'll, leave, they'll probably leave some people, but if you 
start talking about um, biblical things. Like it says, how many thirds of the earth disappear and are wiped out? How many people here? I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. Somebody can look it up if they want to. But um, but it's just, I guess they feel, you know, like the Georgia Guidestones and all these things. And everybody laughed with a chuckle. Like, you know, how many people did they want on the earth? Like, you know, this right. this stuff, which people laughed at as conspiracy theory. It all went out the window when I, you know, studied the the uh, ballistics in the Kennedy assassination and his mm-hmm. wounds. Just that right. little small part was enough to tell me as an average person something stinks to high heaven. And, you know, you've been doing that since you've been uh, working with yep. the plane. But it just tells you if you can remove a president that you can do just about anything. If you control the presidency of America, I mean, and, and recently, like everybody might have different feelings on on each issue. But I just ask you. Like these things were falling like dominoes at such a rate it was frightening. Like cities were being burned. Um, you know, like now you have the food going wrong. The police were, um, you know, basically neutered. The Even the military was neutered. Then they're like, you know, putting barbed wire around things. And, and you know, however you feel on either side of that issue with left and right is, is almost uh, here irrelevant. But it's just that these things seem to be being buttons were being pushed and they did it one after another. And it seems they came to kind of a stop and mm-hmm. slowed it down because it was happening so fast. I thought the whole thing was going to crash when those things were happening one after another. You couldn't even keep up with it to study them. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's announcing digital currency and food shortage is coming and then Putin's running yeah. around, you know, and, and, and again, yeah. I think that we should have said, um, you know, my understanding of it is, okay, well, you know, we're encroaching on your country. We're not going to put offensive weapons in there. Now, stop. If he doesn't, then you could do something about it. But um, it just seems that this whole thing is manufactured. And the end game, I think, is the population and uh, getting people to take this chip. And, you know, there's less people to manage, less resources being used. And with you, I I ask a question, where are they going to live? Are they going to live on the moon, underground? Yeah. We know they have a lot of underground bases and everything. Again, that that call in number is 319-527-5016, 319-527-5016. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you you certainly ask some, uh, you know, some legitimate questions. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I just wonder... Especially, you wonder so these people because they're they're apparently so smart. I mean, I don't know what the hell they are. They're half alien themselves, reptilian, whatever. That we don't know what the hell they are or they think they are, but they certainly they're very dark spiritually. I mean, you know, I came around a lot, but all kidding aside, I just thinking of my soul being in a place where I could do that to people if I was born into that kind of privilege. It makes me shake. I mean, the amount of suffering these people inflict on humanity. But don't they? I mean, don't they? I mean, they they can go back to read the Faust, you know, the, the uh, uh, Faustus, you know, the Faustian bargain, the, the original selling your soul to the devil, devil and Daniel Webster. I mean, these things have been done; they've been in literature for a long time. So the rumors are out there, and and you and I both have talked about, you know, we we think they probably is some literal selling of the souls. But wouldn't you be uh, educated enough, just simply having read? those stories or watch some movies that it's not a good deal for you. You know, you're, you're just going to have earthly pleasure, but then you're going to be you know, eternally tormented or whatever. I mean, I don't know. How, how do you, how do you sell someone on selling your soul? I guess the, the, the devil's a great sales. The first person I asked about that, like he wouldn't mind me mentioning his name is researcher Mike Ray. 
and he was talking to me and Mike's very smart. I mean, his background is solid and, and Mike's one of the brightest people like Chuck, a very high IQ. And um, he said to me, Bobby, you know, the Rockefellers, he told me stories about the Rockefellers and he told me that they worship Bamphomet. And, you know, at first, it sounds strange, but coming from Mike, it wasn't. And, you know, I believe darkness exists. And he was saying they just believe they'd rather rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And yeah. if you look at the astounding amount of money they have, it and a veneer of religion always covers this people, covers these people. Like John mm-hmm. Rockefeller was supposed to be so quote religious, but it was the religious people who wanted to off Jesus and they wanted to keep the status quo. Fair so the more right. I see these people and the amount of money, I do indeed believe if if you're taught that generationally, and the other thing that comes in, and I don't have um, like in other words, we've studied different things. Obviously, I've looked into Kennedy. You guys know areas of it. I don't. But, you know, I think I know a general enough to speak about it and people I've listened to. And and I just believe that these people, they do. They tapped into a spiritual darkness and now it's just reached a crescendo where everyone is really in danger and you and you can't be spiritually sitting on a fence. Mm. Um, I think they're ready to really push the button on some things that are nastier than we've ever seen before. And. And I do believe that at the top level, it's probably a very small percent of elite. But I do believe that they consciously do sell their souls to the devil and that they wipe. It says Satan can appear as an angel of light. Now, I know some of it looks like it comes from a B science fiction movie and that stuff exists. And it is sort of a, a, you know, not a joke where it's ha ha funny, but it's not as deep. But I believe there are these people that are far more sophisticated, uh, spiritually far more in a dark way. And and they actually do things like that, and it explains how these things could happen. With all of this, the resources, all of the knowledge we have, computers going crazy, no one is using this for the benefit, you know, on a high level of, of to help people. It's being used to make these other people more wealthy, take away our rights, take away, you know, even the cash money. You used to think you can't serve God in money, but, you know, how much worse is it when it's like, if you want food, you better have a social credit score and then you're going to have to take electronic money. And, you know, in the meantime, I'm thinking, should I buy Bitcoin until everything goes haywire so I have enough money to live? And if you make a little money on it, but it's an absurd thought when the, when it seems that electronic money is Satan fell from the sky like lightning. And uh, that's electricity. So there's something to that in my gut, but I, I, I can't process it enough. But I do think we're in very real danger unless you really open yourself up to jesus at this point you know i mean not everybody might agree with me but i wasn't expecting a parade yeah no fair enough but you know here's an interesting thing by the way don you do have a phone caller and i'm gonna bring him on in a second but i want to help you both out with something (laughs) and and that is look you look at a serial killer right you don't understand the mentality you don't understand how somebody could do that uh you look at a, a a pedophile this is an unrelatable mindset to you right let me help you with the spiritual side of this. It's not about Satan. It's not about Jesus. It's not about Baphomet. These people have an understanding, especially when it comes to this uh, technocracy that has been erected. They're not dealing with God. They're not dealing with your legend. You understand? They're not dealing with your thesaurus. <laughs> they believe they're creating the God. All right. So if you are the creator of God, what does that make you? Well, kind of the God of your own realm. This is a different thought process from adhering to, fearing, dealing with, making deals. You don't have to because you are the creator. You get it? So 
the person that brings the singularity into existence, the actual complete, uh, you know, uh, merging of man and machine, who can literally assure themselves eternal existence provided the machines don't all break down because they are self-repairing at this point and they are self-actuating at this point, right? The person who brings that into existence, they're not thinking as in, well, I'm dealing with this matrix where I am subservient to a god or a pantheon or a series of gods. It's well beyond that. When you are, and this is a mistake with people with Satanism as well, the majority of what people uh, uh, call Satanism is not about worshiping uh, the red-skinned uh, you know, comic book character, okay? It's not about dealing with the actual adversary, the adversarial uh, concept, which is drawn out in various uh, scriptures. It's not about that. It's not about a devil. It's not about a demon. It's not about his set of rules or anybody's set of rules. You're creating it. You are the God of your realm. That is literally where that mindset is, and that's hard to wrap around if you're used to the idea of, well, I was created by somebody else. I'm not the creator. I'm not the powerful one. If you're in that sort of mindset, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to it. Where these people understood some years ago, like 12, 15 years ago, that even control of the data streams was going to represent control of the rest of the body, right? The rest of the body of all. Uh, and well ahead of us, again, because it's a different ethical construct completely. So you're not dealing with they worship Baphomet and all this. Uh, Mike Ray's got an idea there, but, you know, with all due respect, he's not thinking in this way because it's not part of his uh, internal mechanisms, and, and neither do most people. They always say, well, what about God? You're not contending with God. You're not contending with a scripture. You're not contending with any of that that means anything because you're dealing with people who have learned virtually that there is no set of rules. There is no authority. There is no adversary to the authority that is theirs because they have never dealt with any sort of resistance in a realistic way. So that's what's generationally been passed down, and that's why, well, we create the God machine. Then we are the creators of God who can rule everything. And as far as where they're going to live, all of that is well thought out, well beyond underground, you know, because if you destroy the things above ground, underground's not going to be very pleasant either. Right. They just believe that they have the, the the technology, and most of which you and I will never get to lay our eyes on, to uh, to avoid the consequence. It doesn't matter. Uh, some of them might go to Mars and think they can live in a bubble there. Uh, it, it, it's irrelevant. They they have options, many of them. So, and and besides that, you know, wh what kind of a environment do you require, or a biosphere do you require, if you are literally uh, a ghost in the machine? So. Right you know, it, you don't need air even, which... The Reverend yeah. Chuck O'Shelley. So, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying... Well, that, hey, you, you got your perspective. That that makes sense. But yeah. this is one of the things that I always wish that people would consider about this, where it's like they're not working with those ideas. That's not them. Right. They can play at it. They can act. They can pantomime. They can tell you that they're a Christian. They can tell you they're a Jew. They can tell you all these things. They know nothing about what's in those books, about what's in those traditions, really, outside of the academic. Where they're really working from, from their own personal insides, is that they are literally the order. Not just that they're establishing an order, they are the order. So 
that's the thing there. It uh, looks like you've got, let's see, it looks like you've got a familiar caller on the line, Don, if you want to go to him, and uh, I'll make sure. that my final word on, on all this today. But I always sure. always want to throw that at guys because it shakes them up a little, but it'll get you thinking. It's not let's about go to that the, old concept. So okay, let's go to the caller and see how e- how easy the caller will be to identify. You're on caller. Oh, hi. This is Jimmy James. Jimmy James, there you go. We we knew it was good. How you doing, Jimmy? Thanks for calling. Oh, doing good. Uh, I'm sure you guys are real familiar with Peter Lavenda's work, right? Yes. 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 So what's your thought on sinister forces working kind of behind the scenes? Uh, I've read like a, I, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, Jay. No, go ahead. I, I've read most of his books, and I, I contacted him, but he's busy writing a new one. I wanted to ask him about David Ferry because he did a lot into investigating mm-hmm. David Ferry. But, like, he's an expert basically on the occult, which before I came to Christ I was delivered from. So I agree with like a lot of what Chuck says, and he's been blessed with more intelligence than I have. I hope I have some. But um, I, you know, I was touched by Jesus in, in a risen physical way. Like I felt his spirit there. Again, you could say that's my feelings, and, and I meant well, or something touched me, and it was something else. I believe it was Christ. And, um, you know, Peter Lavenda, ex- you know, explains a lot about the, space program which might be secret and hidden um he talks a lot about uh the dark spiritual forces being very real and in that way i was a little nervous talking to him but i believe he had a handle on it and he does have a lot of experience in it and he's explained a lot of things with the kennedy assassination and and these different uh societies that are out there and um you know the and and even an alternate nasa space program um which the ufos now they're trying to tell you that they're real which could be, uh, you know, a deception. So he's a really interesting guy. And uh, I hope he gets back. I'd like to ask him more about David Ferry in the future. But what were you thinking about with, with uh, Peter Lavenda? Well, my thought is similar to what yours and Chuck's was, but different a little bit. My thought is I'm thinking of the last book of the Old Testament. You'll remember. I mean, you remember uh, the last king of Israel hooked up with Jezebel, and they, and this is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians don't like to talk about this passage where evidently there's some sort of meeting in heaven, and it was God who made this decision that the king of Israel had to go because Jezebel had turned to worshiping Baal and was turning the whole nation against God. And so he, God says, well, this needs to stop. Who wants to do it? And not surprisingly, the, the deceiver, presumably the devil, says, well, I could take care of that for you. And he did. So I almost think, yeah, there's, sinister forces but something even beyond that fate to an extent what's your thoughts on that 
Yeah, I, well, I, I think, you know, Peter Lavenda is somebody that uh, I'm only familiar with through Bob. Bob's talked about him a lot, about wanting to talk to him. But Sinister Forces behind the scenes, I mean, that's that's the basis of uh, most conspiratorial type thought, you know. And I, in my hidden history books, I talk about, I have all the quotes from all the big figures, you know, from Disraeli to to uh, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, all big time conspirators. And they all eat down to Bill Clinton. And they all have have gone on the record as saying there's a you know there's a, an unseen force behind the scenes that's running things, and uh, so some of us in Chuck's case you know he, he's he's that's a viable thought that you know that these these are people that are maybe uh, constructing these things in their own mind or whatever, and they don't really know. But I you know I think Bob agrees with me. And I I think that uh, some of the behavior at least uh, is best explained where there's a dark force. That's uh, it's inspiring it, you know. I mean, some of the stuff you see out there now culturally, when you see these uh, <clears throat> these demonic-looking creatures that are just you can't possibly even attempt to reason with them. Whether you you know, even if you agree with them, how are you going to reason with them? I just think that has the all the earmarks of something dark. You call it satanic, whatever you want, but I, I think there's something there that's in, inspiring that, and it definitely fits the uh, sinister is a good name for it. What's interesting in the Bible is St. Peter wrote that there's a place where the angels were bound about the time of the flood of Noah. It's called Tartarus. And, um, you know, it sounds like a myth or something, but, you know, it could work on both levels. And it says, really, if you read the Bible itself and not just commentary on it. And, you know, I I hate religion as much as the next guy. It really means uh, religarse. It means to go again into bondage is where the word really comes from. And uh, we don't want to be in bondage. We want to be free. But if you read the Bible and it does talk about the evil one who comes out and, and is a false messiah, what it says about him is really it's it's a spirit named Apollyon or a fallen angel named Apollyon. And that name means the destroyer. So basically he comes to destroy. So if you follow that as a myth or I believe it's literal, but um, and it works on both levels, like basically this force that's evil, its real motivation is if God is a creator then, you know, it goes to figure that the other side would be a destroyer. And that's kind of what the Bible, not kind of, that seems to be what the Bible says in my understanding of it. And the times I've looked into it is this guy comes up and he just wants to destroy creation. Like babies going down like an industrial complex now, um, war. All these things are horrible and we don't want to see that happen to people, you know, and I love people in there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like I'm nobody and I'm a sinner. So without God's grace, you know, I'd be as, you know, as fallen as anyone. So, you know, and you have to love people, you know, and God, it's, love will grow cold in the last days. Like love has grown really cold. And I try to remember yes. so, every day that, you know, no matter how much I think of these things, my mind is limited. No jokes. And uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, like no matter what, like, you know, Jesus said, basically love people, you know, as you would have them do unto you, love other people, the golden rule. And we definitely more need more of that in these times to give people hope. Absolutely. Uh, Jimmy Jean, is there anything else you have? Because we have a, actually have another caller on the line and, uh, on hold, and I want to make sure we can fit him in. Uh, well, I did want to get here from Chuck on it because he does know a lot about theology, but since there's another caller, I'll just let you go and have a good day. Thanks for calling, Jimmy. Thanks for listening, too. I always appreciate your input. We, we can always hit it on Friday on my open call-in show, Jimmy, if you want. There you go. All right. All right. 
Thanks. Take care. So we, we have another caller lined up here. There he is. I didn't mean to cut Jimmy James off. <laughs> Who is this? And it's another familiar voice. <sighs> is this another well, three searchers? Yeah, two out of three searchers. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. All we need is Peter to call <laughs> in. And Terry it's Yang. under the Ghostbusters theme. We're the three searchers. <laughs> Who are you going to call? Three searchers. <laughs> I actually thought that he was that I was the caller that Chuck was going to put through, so I started doing my bad Jimmy James impression, and then I heard the real deal, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we missed that. Jeez, has, has, Jimmy, has Jimmy heard your Jimmy James impression? Yeah, I did that to him. I don't, I don't think he was impressed. <laughs> it was just fine. <laughs> Well, anyway, so you guys, are you talking, are you kind of mentioned, like, talking about the breakaway civilization thing? Like, uh, with, uh... Go, 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 talk about I, that. No, I, I could, I thought I heard uh, Chuck start to talk about uh, the breakaway thing, where they got, like, the technology that everyone else doesn't, are not privy to. Yeah, or, I think he was, like, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking that, uh... Yeah, like like when you were talking about like Kissinger and stuff, like being like a thousand years old and, yeah. still and like Big yeah. Macs, you know. Yeah, it's got to be a reason for that. <laughs> well, does doesn't Alex Jones talk all the time? I mean, you know, Alex Jones says some stuff that ends up being true. And one of the things he's talked about for years is that uh, that the the elite uh, want to be gods and they want to try to uh, morph into with AI technology. They want to morph. They want to have a transhumanism. They want to have a morphing of themselves with AI and to become immortal. I mean, is that, that's the impression I get. I, I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think he got Joe Rogan on board with that too. Cause <clears throat> I'm not sure if Joe like agrees that that should be the direction we go in, but he does bring it up quite a bit. So, I mean, I don't know. And Jimmy Jean, uh, by think, the way, so, Jimmy Jean, by the way, says he has heard the impression. It's not true. He's impressed. He thought he was hearing himself. So right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, what does uh, Bob think about the uh, transhumanism aspect? Um, I'm not an expert on it by any stretch of the imagination. But as Chuck was saying I, and Don was saying, I do believe they are moving towards that. And that uh, it's probably way ahead of what we know, as many things are. They always say they're 20 years ahead. And if robotics exist and they could replace limbs and this and that and try to put your consciousness into a computer, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, you know, I don't want to oversay, but I do believe that's happening. And some people who I respect have actually told me that there are underground places where people have been born and they've never been up in the sun. So things mm -hmm. like that, I do believe oh. they happen, but, uh, you know, I've never seen it myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's actually, um, there was a guy that was, uh, I was hoping that Don was going to talk to again. Um, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Phone and do something. yeah. No, this guy, John Quinn, uh, actually wrote an article like, in the yes. early 90s about uh underground base that was uh in missouri that's underneath like uh, an amusement park or something but but yeah no i think that uh you, you look at denver airport all the weirdness with that yes you know, i was thinking of that yeah yeah. yeah yep the murals the I mean, underground the, city supposedly 
Yeah, and just the crazy. Uh, I mean, who who comes up with the idea? Who designed that? Where you're going to put a, a mural in an airport? That's it. Just I shows like this. I mean, they, what? Who? Wouldn't that make flyers nervous? Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. insane. Like nobody Nazi jackbooted thugs stepping on children or something. If I remember right. Yeah, and it's it looks and it looks. I don't know if it's an actual plane crash, but it's along those lines that people are like running in terror. It just you know, you're trying to keep people <laughs> calm, aren't you? They might be scared of flying. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and the old days, they tell you well, a Disney they, movie and give you some fear anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it would give you a Disney. Yeah, exactly. I want to see like the absent-minded professor, not some like horseman driving around with a ghoul on its back with yes, yes, people yes. screaming and children <laughs> writhing in agony and like fire It'd coming. Be something from. to call me. Uh, uh, leave it to Beaver Marathon. Yeah, so, something that well, reminds me. I was drawing me. that picture, but I got distracted. So, <laughs> good. No, I thought airport, and I said, "Well, what, what do people want to see? You know, when they come in, <laughs> <laughs> the they want to be paranoid." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of like, children apparently got abducted near that area too. Yeah. Over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of connects with the whole pedophile. I can't even pronounce it. What Dave McGowan wrote about pedophile. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of, uh, uh, it's not Denver. It's Boulder, Colorado. But uh, I've been contacted by these brothers out of the blue who read um, who read something I wrote about John Benet Ramsey years ago on my blog. And uh, they have uh, been investigating this for years, and they've talked to a lot of people. So, I don't know, they're sending me all their stuff, and I tell them, I don't know what I can do with it. But I, I, I may write a series of articles on Substack about it. I don't, I don't know if it's a book or not, but uh, they found out some very interesting information. You know, they, they kind of tie it into uh, child sex trafficking and all that, which everything seems to be. So, um, look, look for that. they have a picture of Maxwell on her uh, recently that surfaced? Of, with John John A. Ramsey? No, I, I haven't heard that. that. That would be that would yeah, be. I posted it to your thing. Yeah, because you and Peter you? were like, "Oh my God!" Yeah, it was like John A. Ramsey and Twilight like standing you? behind her or something. I saw. I have. What you posted on my yep. Facebook page? God, yeah, I, a long I, time ago. <laughs> a lot of that stuff. Well, I'll have to if you can find it again. Send it. A lot of times you have to send it to me two or three times for it. <laughs> I'm curbing that. Don't worry. No, well, that's great because you you hit on a lot of gems there, and and that's cool. I'm 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a little OCD myself, so I can appreciate it. You know, so that that's that's fine. <laughs> well, we're not talking about Tartarus and such in Denver Airport. If you have any time and you're doing your research there, um, Don and I are trying to knock <laughs> off that book about Paul is dead. So if you find anything that yes, good, anything on that, send that over in a separate file. I so have I have been, but I haven't heard anything from the two of you. So I kind of I kind of just. Because we're lazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh. This is, this is, but for those of you who don't know, and this is Bob's baby, okay? This is going to be his book. I'll help when I can. But uh, Bob well, wants to. Like, I need your help. I'm lazy and I'm like, you know, semi confident. I need you. There you go. Well, I just time to be there. Okay. I just need to be prodded, you know, but uh, it, it'll it'll get done. It's, uh, you know, it's going to be about the Paul is dead phenomenon. And we're not saying Paul is dead, but it's just going to, you know, present. Uh, the creation you know, of like a, a great hoax. Right, PR. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, the evidence is the evidence that is, was presented by the Beatles and so forth is definitely real. That's not a hoax, but you know, the question yeah. is, it's it's. I, I don't think that. But Billy Shears <laughs> wasn't writing the best Paul McCartney songs. I I don't think so. I don't know, but but uh, Bob and I were talking today that uh, some guy 
is the name James or something? Something it comes out that uh, we may be in the book there. The claims that uh, McCarthy well, let- this was a private conversation we had. It's something I really can't talk about. But now that it's out, I could talk about it. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. It's top in a much higher stratosphere. They're not quite the elite, but they're oh, you know, close okay. enough. They worked for Dick James Music <laughs> Publishing, and and they were there. And met all, they met Ozzy, so that should inter- interest Chuck. And they met Rod Stewart and different people. And they're very successful. Like they have, like you know, uh, buku money. And um, you know, they I was introduced, I brought about. along to dinner, and and they said to me, um, you know, how they worked there, and they told me all the stories. And then when we brought up Paul, you know, Paul and such, I mentioned the book. And then they just said that, you know, in the day the Beatles didn't write all of those songs, so they were intimating that someone else wrote some of them. So I would, and it was actually a person they said had something to do with the Sergeant Pepper cover, but then the food came and they blew me off and talked about, you know, more interesting stuff with smarter people. <laughs> so I haven't been able, I'm trying to get weaseled back into a well, table with them to get the rest of the story. Yeah. Well, you're not far, far off there though, because I think Dave McGowan found out that most of the 1960s songs, Beatles aside, were written by um, Glenn Miller or something or Glenn Campbell or something. Well, but, it wasn't. Uh, it was, the, he, Glenn Campbell was. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, well, he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, but he was. I don't think he said said that they wrote them, but uh, Glenn Campbell was like the lead guitarist on almost all those '60s hits. They had a, a group called the Wrecking Crew, which finally they had a documentary yeah, right, about Wrecking Crew, and, and Wrecking, yeah, and, and, and they, that a lot of the hits that we know we know yes, of, like, they played, uh, they, yeah, like they what's, played what's, the, uh, what's the guy there? Uh, uh, which guy? Glenn Campbell no, and that, the, there, um, the, the one that was going to be donated. Yeah, no, the guy that donated to uh, uh, Cheryl Crow to have a child or whatever. You know, who I'm oh, about, oh like, uh, David, David Crosby. Yeah, David Crosby. Yeah. Well, they, Crosby, David Crosby he, supposedly he barely... didn't have musical talent at all and didn't no, write any of this stuff. No, no. He, he's, and, a lot of, and that's what, you know, that's why when people talk about Manson, of course, we're running out of time in a couple of minutes, but uh, the interesting all thing right. about Manson is, regardless of anything else, Manson was. Probably more talented, talented than most of yeah. most of those guys. And I, I have in, on Barred Fame, I have a great quote from Neil Young, where he just he just yeah. drool, drools over the guy. Oh, this guy's incredible, Charlie. He's writing stuff like nobody else. He's a genius. And so people think Manson. No, the, the the people there liked him. And basically, if things had been different, you know, he could have been picked to be. He could have been on the monkeys, maybe. He could have <laughs> been one of the monkeys. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Literally, and I, I, you know, Stephen Stubbs tried out. and Manson's <laughs> Well, we're, we're, we only got a minute left, and I know Chuck has his own fine show that he needs to do. So uh, the two three searchers, Bob Wilson and Chris Gray's, uh, either you guys want to each give a final statement or whatever you want to promote or whatever before we get off here. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we've passed the audition. <laughs> How about you, Chris? And I hear that music. Chris Graves, Bob Wilson, thanks so much. Thanks to everybody for listening to the Donald Jeffrey Show. We'll see you same time next week. We'll be talking Orwell next week. We'll have the creator of Orwell today, uh, Jackie Jura, on next week. Thanks so much for listening. 